0: son told me that you've got lots of hair under your arms, three times more than I do. I crept inside.
1: I don't know,
2: penis. I started you Ever since your husband killed my father, he's been flirting with my mom.
0: What a charming boy. How did his father die?
1: Hello and welcome to Midweek Matinee, a weekly movie podcast where we choose one movie each week and watch it together so that we can discuss it. Uh, If you want to listen to the episode, it is a spoiler podcast, so make sure that you have seen the movie in question. This week, it is The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is available for free to watch on, well not for free, I guess, but to watch on Netflix if you've already got Netflix. Uh, Otherwise, you can find it on other streaming platforms. Joining me this week, as always except for chris chris missed an episode that I did. dirty bastard i hope he had a good time though really he took a, a nice vacation so chris you're naturally the first person i've mentioned hey what's up how you doing <laughs> and also with me is mr blake popst hello everybody welcome <laughs> welcome <laughs> <laughs> and s- last but certainly not least is mr joshua lago how are you sir
2: I- i'm great i'm just trying to figure out if blake was intentionally or unintentionally channeling the belco experiment <sighs> uh, and, intentionally i feel like it's got we have to talk about that, that
1: movie in every episode right i mean it is I- I the best like movie that- dude uh, no. come
3: on man <laughs> Uh, I hate that more than a certain M word. Like I hate that Marva? movie more. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am not a fan of murder, <laughs> but there's there's a word that I don't like, and M- I M- hate Duk. the Bucko experiment more. Oh, than that Massachusetts,
0: okay. yes, yep. fuck Massachusetts. Yep. <laughs>
1: If we have any listeners in Massachusetts, well, too fucking bad. (laughs) Yeah. Come over fucking I-84 and see me, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So like I mentioned, we are watching, or we watched rather this week, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And I think that the best way to start this off is to ask how uncomfortable each person was as they were watching it. So Josh, I'm going to start with you. How uncomfortable were you watching
2: this movie? I mean look 2020 hasn't been a comfortable year so I already (laughs) go into everything with a base discomfort level but this movie definitely brought it to a new height like uh, I I was for context I was pretty uh, ratcheted up going into House of a Thousand Corpses because I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into but (laughs) uh, I definitely far and away was a lot more uncomfortable watching this movie and stayed more (laughs) uncomfortable for hours after
1: hmm okay all right gripping words from <laughs> Joshua lago uh all right uh blake you have seen this movie before i have uh so coming back around to it you actually gave us uh i can't remember if it was on episode and on recording or if it was after we finished recording but you kind of had mentioned that the way that the director uh what is it Yuri lanthimos or something like that
0: Yorgos, i think Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah. that sounds right i'm probably butchering like the pronunciation but yeah
1: me too, but that's okay. Uh, so you had given us a little bit of a hint that it he had very interesting dialogue, and that is definitely the the way to go about it. Uh, so rewatching it, was it any more uncomfortable than the first time, or since it was kind of a known quantity, how did it react? Like, how did you feel about it coming back and revisiting it?
0: You know, the first time I saw it, I went in totally blind. I just, I think I just found it on Netflix or something, or looked it up because I knew it was a twenty four. And I'm a sucker for mm-hmm. A24. But, um, yeah, it's definitely still uncomfortable while you watch it. Like, <laughs> you just don't get over the way that they talk.
1: <laughs> see, I- I'm glad you said that because I felt like when watching it, I was like, I feel like no matter how many times you watch this movie, this is so purposeful and so, like, done with a reason in mind that I can't see this ever not really being uncomfortable. So, uh, Chris, what about you, man? I know that of all of them, <sighs> all of of all of us – we, we have this thing where in the in the discord that we share to just communicate with each other we kind of give little hints about how we felt about the movie mm-hmm. and chris seemed to Loved not it. love <laughs> it <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah chris uh, what was it because of how uncomfortable it made you or did you find the uncomfort or the discomfort rather that it gives you did you find it pretentious what was it about the movie that you just that didn't um you?
0: Ah,
3: it was pretentious that was definitely a word that you could use okay. um, I think the thing is is that and this is going to sound really you know to my own horn but I, I write and I'm writing I've spent a lot of time researching how to write dialogue
1: mm-hmm. and
3: this dialogue is so bad that it, it made me feel like I could be a successful screenwriter without any practice I think um. the
0: dialogue was written that way intentionally.
3: Uh, that, to me, just doesn't make a good dialogue. Well, sure, I'm not know? saying you
0: have to like it. I'm just saying that, like, it was intentionally awkward, the way that right. they talk to each other. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't just poor writing, I don't think.
1: Yeah, I yeah. think if I had to come in, since I haven't really talked about it, clearly, I mentioned, it is uncomfortable. The entire time, you know, early on, when you're still kind of coming to grips with it, you have a feeling of, like, it's stilted. And it feels very weird. and It's like no one talks to each other this way. When you, when you don't realize what they're doing yet, you just feel like this is so weird. No one talks this way. No one does this. Even sentences, like a lot of the sentences are already weird. It's like no one puts together sentences like that. But then even when they approach sentences that you'd hear anyone say that should be normal, it still f- sounds stilted and awkward and weird and rushed that's when it started kind of clicking with me i was like okay this is a very purposeful thing yeah and that's- every character does it clearly i've seen a lot of these people act i know it's not the acting i know So i was like and i know that the dialogue while written this way even poorly written dialogue can come off okay when it's not like you were led to make sure that you were saying it went during filming in the most just discomforting way possible just to endlessly cause unease in the you know the viewer to that end i guess i'd say that is it good dialogue i think uh, technically speaking it would be no but is it good dialogue in so far as it had a purpose and i think it succeeded in that purpose then i guess it's dialogue that is good based off of the outcome yeah uh that it's, it's a weird one
3: yeah i would be interested through the show to hear the arguments on that i get why you guys are saying it was uncomfortable because i think that's what the movie wanted but absolutely the problem for me was not oh why is he talking to his colleague about his daughter's period it was more nobody would talk to their colleague about their daughter's period it kind of felt like an author trying to show not tell and doing it really badly you know instead of being like my daughter just turned 14 he goes my daughter just had her first period and she's doing well She doesn't have any problems. It's totally fine. Her cramps are gone. We bought her chocolate. We bought her roses. We bought her candles. How's your daughter? She's great. What kind of watch are you wearing? You know? Like, it was like... To me, it it, it just came off comical. So the movie didn't end up making me uncomfortable. It ended up making me sit there like, why would you say this?
1: This doesn't make sense that you're saying this. I will go ahead and butt in, I guess, with that. I actually when the movie first started and you first see it, I actually had a very similar reaction initially. It's mm-hmm. like, this is so ridiculous that it just comes off as like unintentionally comical.
2: Mm.
1: And then mm. as the movie kind of goes further, I, I think that the best way I can kind of describe it for me, and then I definitely want to hear Blake and Josh's uh, input on this, is I feel like if the dialogue was written and recorded the way it was but the movie was not structured the way it was it wouldn't have been as effective i feel like this is a really good example of a strong directorial vision knowing where you're wanting to go with something and planning it out to where when it all comes together to me it it makes sense even if all of the things individually are a bit weird it all comes together to make something that's compelling and interesting. So to me, that was where, as odd as that was, once the, as the movie kept going and would give you some information while withholding a ton of information, that discomfort that naturally came, even though I found it comical at first, it was still uncomfortable, but it was uncomfortable in a way that was mildly funny. <laughs> and mm. then from there, as the movie kind of continued to sparsely give you information to give context to scenes, it that discomfort started to rise with what was happening on screen until you feel like you're just as uncomfortable as the characters are in those given moments. And it's interesting because once that starts happening, the dialogue no longer seems odd so much as it just feels like it's part of the tension and the give and take of the scene. So it's almost like it becomes invisible. At the at that point, it's not that it's any less awkward, it's just that it's so effective and to me and what it was trying to build towards that it's no longer noticeable in a way that stops me and makes me think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Blake, I'm going to go ahead and and throw over to you because since you already had a little bit of experience with this and coming back around to it, I mean, you probably have the most to say about it, but maybe not. Who knows? What, What you got?
0: Well, I don't know that my feelings necessarily translate into like the most words or whatever, but I just feel that the awkwardness and the The way the dialogue is delivered, obviously it's hard to put into words because like it's kind of one of a kind, I guess I mean, I think all of his films are like this this is the only one I've seen, but um I watched a short trailer for The Lobster, which I plan to
1: choose eventually because I've wanted to watch that movie for a long time yeah same uh, here. and mm-hmm. in that short trailer, it was interesting uh it was Colin Farrell all over again um and it was almost. Exactly the same. So it's definitely a choice he and all of his movies are very weird. Yeah. They're not about normal subject matter. So Again, I feel like that's part of it. But yeah, it's definitely something he does in all of his movies, it appears.
0: Yeah, I think that the way it was, all of the dialogue was delivered with such, like, I mean, obviously there were parts where the father, he would yell and get loud or whatever, but most of the dialogue was very calm and quiet. And the way that people talk, like you mentioned him just like bringing up the uh, that his daughter had her first period or whatever. It's just so normal that that's what makes it unnerving. Does that make sense? Like nobody flinches at it. Nobody thinks it's weird in the movie. Yeah. So that's what makes it feel so weird to me is that like okay. it's normal to the world that the movie takes place in the universe or whatever
1: All right, Well, Josh what do you got to say about the dialogue because I do think it's one of the biggest points of I don't know if I'd say contention it's just one of the things that I think most obviously presents itself as a discussion point like if you, if you knew that somebody you had known had watched this movie one of the first things you'd say to them is what the fuck was up with the way they mm-hmm. talked in that movie
2: <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's there's something very stoic about it Uh, But it's not, it's not like fully stoic in like the, it it feels like there's an emotional inflection to it uh, in that a lot of it, just every line of dialogue, even though the character is being very stone faced, it it feels like it betrays a lot of uh, anxiety and discomfort in that person. And I I think there's an Mm -hmm. interesting way that this movie addresses, even just in what the characters fixate on verbally. Uh, there's an interesting way that you sort of see like uh, midlife insecurities in in uh, you know the main husband and wife and you see a lot of like early teen insecurities in the kids and their discussions and there's something really kind of to Blake's point there's something that's really (coughs) effective about how much it makes like really unremarkable interactions stick in your mind because of how they're delivered and sometimes it is because yeah. they're delivered in an unremarkable way, but the stuff that they're talking about is so, like, you know, you, you wouldn't talk about this. I, I guess, Brett, to your point, as far as, like, everything feeling purposeful, I totally agree. What the angle is, what what's trying to be achieved here, I'm not as certain that I see. And I think that's one of those things where, with this movie, there's a lot of stuff that feels like it's masterfully done. I just don't necessarily understand at the end of watching it why it was done that way and that's not like an absolute failure of the movie or anything but that does ultimately affect my enjoyment of the movie but as soon as i was done watching it i felt like i i want to see this again at a later time when i can kind of distance myself (laughs) just (laughs) immediately i want to just fucking double down (laughs) on discomfort but uh yeah I, i I do want to come back to this, especially after having seen the director's body of work, because I think there's something very interesting going on here. It's just without knowing what the intent is, it feels kind of like it falls flat. And I don't know that I respect the decision of committing to this dialogue. And I think it has a lot of subtext in different scenes where the dialogue almost isn't... I, I was thinking about this while I was watching it, and I don't know quite how to explain it, but the dialogue isn't... It, it feels like it's the behind-the-scenes, like the stuff that you're not supposed to say, or the internal monologue or something. It, it feels like it's not yes. the stuff that you in these scenes <clears throat> should actually be saying to each other. It feels like if someone cut all the dialogue out of this movie and put different dialogue that makes it all more sinister. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: No, that, so you come to one of the biggest points I kind of had, and where a lot of the scenes, as awkward as they are, it's kind of like a feeling of these are things that like maybe talking about the watches and the periods uh but yeah that, that opening scene where they're coming through and uh they're walking through and they're talking about the daughter and the watches and spending all this time i think a lot of it kind of does speak into the internal um dialogue that we kind of keep within ourselves and it's putting a verbalized mm-hmm. to that because i think throughout the movie when you see like the teens all get together in a room and then you see this boy who's you know curious about what manhood's like and sees a teenage boy coming in and being like hey do you have art armpit Mm -hmm. hair and it's like it's shit that a kid would probably say to themselves like i wonder if they got armpit hair like how old is he how when do you start getting body hair how much of it do you get it's like all these weird questions that people naturally have but don't normally Mm -hmm. verbalize because they understand that it's odd and it's more of like something you're keeping within your uh, discussion amongst yourself and it's like putting that out there and how much that changes the scene is really interesting because it just it makes things that should be or moments that should be unremarkable there shouldn't be anything naturally remarkable about kids getting together in a room and kind of just talking about their interest and right weirdly enough moving towards like their body hair and all that and then talking about smoking mm. and the way that it's done it's it all feels like it's outwardly verbalizing things that everyone internally holds, and the and the reason one of the it's we're gonna go ahead and move towards one of the big uh, it's, like, it's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie, while also being a pretty big um, story part as to how things go on. Is I feel like while we're talking about the dialogue, it's important to go to this part where later in the movie, uh, once the family is kind of aware of what needs to be done in order to save one of them. I love that the two kids kind of already know like it's most likely going to be one of us two, you know, and then it starts being this game of where the kids are talking to each other and doing this back and forth on who's going to get killed and why. The daughter is fully aware of what's going on, and that's kind of weird because it's like a she almost. It doesn't seem like she's been told, but it's almost like she's mm-hmm. supernaturally aware. But regardless, I just love that it's like there's this escalating thing between them trying to prove their worth and loyalty. As to their dad, so that he 's the one who has to ultimately make the decision, yeah. yeah, and to me, having a movie with entirely normal dialogue and then suddenly having the kids sitting here saying really fucked up shit to each other would not make sense, but I think having a movie that constantly outward you know verbalizes internal thoughts, then you can get to a scene where you see two kids who are aware of a situation outwardly verbalizing things that they'd be thinking to themselves naturally as humans. You'd think, well, my life is at stake. How could I prove that I'm worth Mm -hmm. more? How could I, go and and then you see that actually manifest into action as you see the daughter doing her thing and the and the son going through and cutting his hair just so he can go and be like yeah dad you're right i feel like that all the scenes contextualized within the choice for the dialogue all start to make sense now just to close off my thing and i think uh, i don't know which one of you it was trying to talk but uh i i think that blake i mean i think that josh rather is right As much as I really appreciate the movie and really enjoyed watching it, it's something I actually like about it, but the vagueness of the ending and kind of like letting people pull what they want to out of it and not really being crystal clear about what happened, what's going on, why, you know, it's – I liked it, but it does kind of create a weird feeling of I'm not exactly sure – The entire point of what the movie Mm -hmm. was trying to get to, but I like that it lets each viewer kind of take what they want to from the experience and leave it, which I think is a quality of good art in a sense where it's open, and it doesn't mean that all good art has to be this way, but some art is great because it can let each person who views it have such a vastly different take on it. So whoever else was wanting to speak up, I don't know if it was
0: Blake or, or Josh or who... Yeah, if Josh wants to go first, that's why. Uh, I
2: I didn't really have anything. I, I more or less said everything I had to oh, about okay. the dialogue. <laughs> and then really the rest of my thoughts are kind of open-ended. So uh, I defer to you, Brett.
0: Oh, Blake, if you had something. Yeah, I was just going to add uh, a few things about the dialogue, um, which y'all kind of mentioned. you know, them talking a lot about like their own bodies and like body hair and stuff. But uh-huh. the conversations would switch so fast. It was almost like it was just conversations of non sequiturs. Mm-hmm. Like, they might have, like, two or three lines that are just, like, about that subject, and then it would switch pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think the dialogue, it also lended to the feeling of, yeah, they were a family, and you could, I guess, you could kind of tell that they, like, loved each other, but everyone felt really distant. Like, there was no intimacy, there was no, like, real bonding or anything, I guess. I don't know, I just yeah. felt like all of that kind of played off really well with each other. Which was oh. and weird I think,
1: across the board. Uh, go ahead.
0: No, I was just gonna say, and I think that worked that's why it worked for me, so you can go ahead
1: yeah, that's a big part of I assume the dialogue, but also maybe just in general the characters and their motivations across yeah. the board. none of the characters within this movie feel close. It feels yeah. like a movie mm-hmm. full of distant people, like even other fam it's not just a singular family that feels disparate mm-hmm. it's like even the 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 friend that he was talking to the that, that you know <laughs> ends up apparently having a thing for uh Steven's wife, but uh even his own family and other coworkers and everyone coming in to view the sun's like none of them have any real personality or any pool or any everything feels cold and distant it's yeah. it's very awkward and it builds towards the tone of the movie
0: uh no just even like the sex scene she just like laid on the bed and then it didn't even show anything so like you didn't even see any of the intimate parts or what you would assume would be intimate but also she just laid there so I don't know how intimate it could possibly be
1: yeah uh, before it slips my mind and then I think Chris has something to say uh, one of the things about the uh, the rapid fire succession is uh, of the Dialogue also ties back into my feeling that the movie is just a bunch of verbalized internal thought. And part of the reason I say that is you know when you've just been sitting there or even when you're mid-conversation with somebody and every two seconds your internal monologue is changing. Your brain constantly goes through so much stuff and moves through information so quick Mm -hmm. that you're constantly thinking of other things while you're also talking and verbalizing like, I, like I'm doing it right now I'm thinking about other stuff while I'm sitting here talking I oh, feel like that you. kind of showed in that and I thought that was I thought that was interesting because it's like with it all having that that feeling of being outward verbalized thoughts that you'd have it follows that in style, too, because it doesn't linger on any of them. It's like your brain tends to not really linger. It tends to float and just say something to itself real quick, have a remark, and then mm-hmm. move on to the next thing. So, Chris, what you got?
3: I think the one thing that I was going to comment on was Blake saying that the family didn't seem like they loved each other. And I definitely don't think that anyone in that family really cared about any of the other ones <laughs> except the father. But I think even he only cared in so much as they were decorations mm-hmm. in a lot of ways yeah you know i think the mom makes it pretty clear that she doesn't care throughout the movie and then kind of shows her cards right at the end when she's like we can just have another kid yeah
0: (laughs) right i think that is a big part of the point of the movie is like the upper like middle class like Mm -hmm. white family is just like kind of distant from like everybody else does that make sense like they're so that impression too i don't know interesting i did not get
2: that
3: yeah, I don't necessarily even know what you mean, so I don't...
2: It's not that it's exclusive to white families, but I think there's something that can often exist uh in white families and at least the appearance of it seems to be more present families where they're they're wealthy so like there's there's something about struggling together that's a bonding experience and i feel like that's not like that hard times make a family better or not but like there's something present in some families that like value each other and go through tough times together and like they have to form those tight bonds to get each other through it i don't know if that has anything to do Mm -hmm. with it i'm not (laughs) licensed to be talking about the social or or psychological effects of of money and family but uh <laughs> well now i think
1: if you scale it back to just looking at the the differences that socioeconomic impacts can have on it i did get a little tinge of the movie of like well they're clearly wealthy and their kids go there is a thing like you mentioned where a lot of their times uh the reasons that families are close-knit tends to often be families that have had long historical periods of money trouble uh, because by having to rely on family for everything to make sure that everybody in the family is getting fed despite not really having the money to do so, things like that do create a different type of bond and I do think that you can see that I guess i just didn 't necessarily looking at it from the f- like full on like middle class white or anything it's just I kind of looked at it as like to me they weren 't even middle class to me they look like a this is an upper class place this is a surgeon, and mm-hmm. his wife is also a neuro uh, neuro you know surgeon yeah. or whatever so I was like you know this is clearly a higher in people. And I think it does show something that like parasite taps into of like richer families being disconnected from the others. I don't think it was like a strong overarching theme, but I do think it was there. Uh, Something that Chris mentioned that I think was really interesting about the movie's actions. uh, Again, the, the, the mom saying, you know, we can have another one. I think it's like, it's, it's the internal desperation that the mind goes to. And that's why I keep coming back to this idea of it being a verbalized monologue because as anybody who has anything you can tell there's times where your brain just quickly and sharply swings to like something you never actually do but it just goes there and it's like well what about this and you're like whoa that's messed Mm -hmm. up no that's not it at all that would not be the solution and i I feel like that's what that moment was you know it's like she's coming to grips with what has to be done she's looking and saying well you know not that it's the best solution but like what if we just had another kid what if we got just chose one you know maybe even the youngest one because you know just and then just had another one and kind of try and then not that even that she really meant it so much as it was like the desperation of the brain trying to find a solution in a moment where you know that it's mm-hmm. uncomfortable and that you're it, it, it's kind of a self-preservation yeah. thing right it's like well in the in her saying that she's almost removing herself from the equation completely she's like well let's just have another kid you know it's gonna be one of the kids that we have to kill not me of course Mm, right so i again i just feel like it's a bunch of so much of the dialogue is things that people wouldn't say out loud but that you say in your mind sometimes like you know when pregnant this is actually just a, a thing when when women get pregnant And then they have a kid, a lot of the times early on with all their emotions and stuff going wild because of the absolute flood of endorphins and different things going on inside their body hormonally, it's not uncommon for a mom to have like a thought of choking their baby or something. And they immediately are like, that's messed up and I won't do that. But your brain will sometimes be like, this is an option. And then you're immediately like, no, 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 that's not an option. (laughs) So it's just, I feel like that movie, the movie's dialogue choice plays into all of that and the call of the um, void r- yeah really that's the best way to describe it is the the the, the what if of it of it all not that it's, that it's something you do but
2: that, that's a great way to explain it because i i felt that way through a lot of it and wasn't quite sure how to like put my finger on it that was a great example of when she's talking about like yeah we could have another kid my, my gut reaction was honestly to empathize with that before i found myself being like oh what that's fucked up why am i empathizing with her saying that but it's like no like because i've been <laughs> along for the ride with them in this impossible situation where like there's no way they get out with it without enduring some form of tragedy it's like well at this point you have to pick the tragedy that you're comfortable enduring so what does that look like for you and there's no answer that isn't fucked up but this is the situation that you're in
1: exactly and that's why i think uh unless anybody else wants to kind of talk about the dialogue uh, i think that that lends itself to a good bridge into some of the actual plot discussion so while we're kind of talking about the impossible situation that they're found in i actually really love that in the long run i guess i should say you know like you know we talked about the mom kind of coming off as like she does and doesn't care in different ways Mm -hmm. i felt like you know blake mentioned the family being cold and distant I feel like that about every character until eventually something happens to where it kind of betrays that. And you're like, oh, no, they do care. And the movie's way of showing it is just very interesting. You know, as the dad is clearly knowing that he has to make this decision and he's going through after being told this ridiculous thing. I like that the the only way he can really land on what he wants to do because he spends time with both of the children and is like clearly torn about the decision uh, the weight of the decision on his hands. I love that the penultimate decision for him is like the only way I can do this, the only possible way to do this without feeling immense guilt over having to have chosen mm-hmm. one over the other is to just put yeah. a bag over my head get a gun, put them all here, spin around. Which, until finally real quick, someone.
2: was that scene like funnier than it felt like it was supposed to be? <laughs> I yes. felt like
1: it was supposed to be <laughs> uncomfortably funny. The whole movie. Was, like, I mean, it's,
2: it's, a it's funny movie, like, and maybe that's yeah. like, uh, we can talk about this more, uh, a little bit later on, but I feel like that could be, maybe that's rooted in like the, the Greek tragedy, uh, ethos of this film and what it's based on because there's something so weirdly funny about this man in his most desperate hour at the end of like two hours of just like the absolute worst shit happening and it's like seeing him fail to just finally make this decision where he gets to take agency over this terrible situation and it's just like his kind of like clumsiness and ineptitude in that situation is like really funny while you also feel terrible for him it felt
1: i think part of the reason that it's uncomfortably funny is like of course the subject matter around it is very dark and like this is a really big decision and i'd say really like the climactic decision Mm -hmm. of the movie clearly it feels decidedly slapstick mm. in the craziest sense where it's like he's just hitting stuff and shooting into the ether and it's hitting stuff and then every time he has to pull his mask up and be like, <laughs> yeah. fuck, did I hit something? And then pull it back down. It is. It's The way it was crafted makes it feel like something you'd expect to see out of like a Charlie Chaplin mm-hmm. movie at the exact same time being a really weighty decision that you'd never want to make on yeah. your own.
2: Like I, I could totally almost see that in like, you know, 1920s like black and white like someone playing an upright piano over it and it's just like oh yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah like if you were if you just remove the family from the equation and just say he had three different targets that he was trying to shoot he kept missing it's like ah classic yeah. comedy slapstick. <laughs> he's
2: shooting balloons with a dark gun. <laughs> but,
1: yeah yeah but you but you add in the family and the fact that this is a real gun it's like oh shit <laughs> this is okay mm-hmm. it's a little dark um uh, but, yeah, I, I I like how everything built to that in, like, the craziest of way. I mean, like, I already mentioned it, but it, it was just – seeing everyone kind of come to terms with the roles within the movie was so weird to me and the way the movie something i mentioned earlier and i'm sure y'all probably caught when i caught glimpses of to uh blake of course hope maybe the first time around i don't know how much he would remember it uh but for josh and chris just like me being the first time watching this you know i, I mentioned earlier that the movie does a lot about Kind of keeping its cards close to its chest and giving you little bits of information that force at least me forced my brain to kind of rationalize and come up with something that explained what was going on everything I could fathom and I wonder if this was purposeful it's, it almost seems like it but everything I could fathom was always like oddly inappropriate as to why this grown man and this mm. young kid were together like I That's- kept kind of thinking to myself like early on I was like, "Is this a weird underage affair that Martin and Steven have going on?" Like he's buying him a watch. I always thought it was talking. like a hidden
3: son. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought throughout the movie.
1: See, I, and I, I and then I started thinking about that. So it went from like a weird affair to then you see a little bit more from the movie, and it's like, okay, it's either a, a son that's hidden that is just coming back around. He's learning about, or it's somebody that he's that he knows that he's just trying to play a fatherly role for. But part of it that got me is like. And, again, you could go both ways, but, like, the lie that he told his doctor colleague, you know, his surgeon, his yeah. anesthesiologist, rather, who's like, oh, this is uh, my daughter's, uh, you know, friend mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Um, and he was interesting and he was interested in surgery, and he kind of kept being like, hey, you can't come up here. You can't see me. To me, that felt – and, and he was like, uh, if you need me, call me. And he's like, well, I needed to see you. I kept being like, man, is this, like – it feels sexually mm-hmm. charged – but See, I didn't com- think that at all. The conversation is so awkward that it's... And I think it's, this actually speaks a lot to the dialogue again. Because of the dialogue so weird, it seems like they're being secretive and weird. So it's like, what's so secretive and weird? I thought about both of those things.
0: Um, well, I thought but, all that made sense in the context that he would be like a, a hidden son or something. Like if, if he was his son, he wouldn't want him being up there because the doctor's friends with his wife. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, fair. I, I mean, I get i get it but I, either way i mean i can't that that's just where it went and i was like this is really weird and uncomfortable yeah. i thought <laughs> and,
3: the same thing though. i definitely was it's like, definitely oh, weird, weird and uncomfortable, yeah. sex.
1: <laughs> okay so so it's not just me i was about to say i was like if i'm the only one that pulled that out of a group of four people
0: then, uh, more about yourself <laughs>
2: maybe so I, I was thinking like the scene where he's like asking him to take his shirt off and i was like okay first of all like you're not going to do that right because you know how incriminating that's going to look if someone walks in on that and then he did and i was just like okay (laughs) so someone's going to walk in right and that's going to be like the next level of escalation so i was actually surprised the movie didn't ramp up the the uncomfortableness even further by having like you know the anesthesiologist (laughs) or somebody walk in and be like what the fuck's going on
1: yeah see and i guess that's what i mean is like Even deep into the movie, that scene's not. I mean, that's like, that scene's probably halfway into the movie, or at least getting close to halfway, and you're still like, wait (laughs) a minute, what? (laughs) It's like, even. I kept kind of bouncing back and forth because the movie, like we talked about, talks so much about the body and stuff that you kind of have, like, it, it constantly makes you even i'm really generally in normal day life i'm not very uncomfortable and i don't really like the idea of being uncomfortable with your own body which i think a lot of people are um and i I think a lot of people project that onto their kids to be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with their own body like and so it's seeing a movie that's kind of like everybody's just (laughs) throwing in very odd ways just like throwing their clothes and like lifting their arms and i think it's because it's such menial things that you wouldn't <laughs> normally a- 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 associate with like i don't know it's just weird every bit of that kind of talking about the body overly and like having the daughter like pull her dress off and just like without any provocation or anything and just being like i'm ready for you and then him being like bye I'm like, this movie's so weird <laughs> you know what i thought was weird
3: about that scene is that she does the same thing as her mom yeah yeah and exactly i there's I no but go ahead brett because no, that's no, you're another good. Go one ahead. so that's another one of my problems with this movie is there is no r- legitimate explanation why her mother and or father's rape fetish is also the doctor the daughter's natural way of having sex i don't well, understand the only two that women
0: that we see like begin to like do that like the to right. start like intimacy or whatever, so maybe that's just common in this like universe. I guess I don't know, but I don't oh, think that the movie that has to like, explicitly explain every single thing that happens.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the problem is they explain nothing that happens. That's what pisses <laughs> me off about this movie, and that's oh. the that's one that's just not even like you need to explain it. It just doesn't make sense why they would both have this.
2: I take that as intentionally mirroring what the mother does whether that was to be us assuming that she saw that at some point and was like replicating it in that way or if it's supposed to be like a metatextual kind of thing i i don't know but i mean it, it felt like at least that connection was implied like there being a similarity for their acts that way
3: i don't know i just don't think the movie earned that from me well, I yeah, definitely I agree think. with
2: Josh.
1: Where that moment came to me, I went from being like, it wasn't, su- it wasn't completely on the money, but it was eerily close. Where it was like, huh, this is interesting. But I thought the same thing. I kind of took it as, here's a young girl. Uh, it's not that uncommon for kids to eventually see their parents involved in some form of sexual activity. Hmm. It, it's a, something that no one wants to happen, but it inevitably almost always does, you know, even if it's just seeing your parents in a sexualized like when they didn't intend you to see them in a sexualized way even whether or not (laughs) there's actually with uh, somebody else or not it's just one of those things where i feel like exactly like josh said i kind of took it as here's a girl who doesn't have experience in anything she has seen her parent so in her innocence of not knowing what to do but having feelings of wanting to do something is she's just mirroring what she's seen like Blake said, it could be that this is just common. Clearly, it's not. I think it's because he's a surgeon, kind of like the the anesthesia anesthesia fish, where it's like when right. someone's under and you can you technically have the ability to do anything you want to. But as a hopefully a good surgeon, he wouldn't do that. But he can take that home, and since him and his wife are both doctors, maybe they can play on that. And who knows? I mean, you know, sexual things are weird. But I to me, I was like. Whether it's just that everyone does it, which I don't think it's the case, or even if it's just that she saw her mom doing it, she's just mirroring from inexperience what she's seen someone else do, which is pretty common. I mean, you look in, in the world now, they talk about how like the ease of access of porn is really fucked with the way that you know teenagers view uh, sex because everybody goes in like guns blazing. Because they mirror <laughs> what they've seen. Oh.
3: <laughs> so, anyways, sorry, yeah, right, honey. I'm going to stick you in the lawn in the washing
1: machine. You cannot get out of the washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen to me. If you get out of the washing machine, you ruin the illusion. Clearly, Right. I no can't one can... come unless you're trapped. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that's my point. Is now, whether or not it's an actual, like, you know, reference to that, I do think it's just a reference to how when presented with situations that they have no, ex- no previous experience in, kids tend to mirror their parents or parental figures in doing it. So, yeah, I I guess, like Blake, I didn't really think it needed to be explicitly said. I thought it was kind of like an Easter egg. Like, if you happen to notice it, you're like, oh, that's interesting. Otherwise, it's like, oh, it just happened. Like, it doesn't really change the t- the context of the scene to me at all.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it also ties back into like the the metaphor of like the nuclear family, like the upper middle class family, you know, like the 50s and 60s, you know, the women submit to the men or whatever, especially for sex.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I get what you mean. I, I definitely got that impression from it, too. I mean, like there, there's clearly, and I mean, it, it comes up in, in their big fight in the kitchen and stuff, there's clearly not like a healthy relationship of give and take between the husband and wife as far as like expectations, and it seems like uh generally you know the the surgeon dude's kind of like not really considerate of other people's needs and that's kind of reflected in the movie's portrayal of all of them but yeah if to be fair
0: she misplaced the teeth and the pubes so
2: (laughs) (laughs) i laughed
1: so much at that scene but it was also so uncomfortable again this movie just constantly rides this wave of being funny in a really uncomfortable way. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know. It's like. Even the scene that I think most people would have seen from this movie. Before I ever knew what it was. Uh, I, I would see the meme where they took the kid eating spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> you know. They took, the, the Martin eating spaghetti part. Even that scene was funny to me. In like a really unsettling way. Where I'm just like. Oh my like, god. This is fucking weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, but at the same time. What's crazy about that scene. Is like what he's talking about. And I actually. I think the movie touches on some interesting themes. Like. Like and the way it chooses to do it is so different than what you typically see done in the in any of these mediums i kind of like that this is like a, a boy who is missing his father and you know he's in his formative years without his father around and i love the little story he told to the wife during that moment where he's like uh you know they say i ate spaghetti just like my dad and he goes, you know, I thought we were the only ones to do it. That was a special thing. That kind of, you know, it was my odd connection to my dad. That kids do end up getting, you know, they yeah. when, definitely when they lose parents, they have things that they latch onto that they think is unique and gives them like a, a, a attachment to their parents. Mm-hmm. Just for him to kind of be like, lo and behold, every fucking body eats spaghetti the same way. <laughs> uh, I just, it, it was oddly heartbreaking, and it kind of made me empathize with Martin way more than i had throughout the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. yeah uh so yeah the every scene is odd but when you really start to break it down there's a lot that you can kind of start to pull from it and uh it's yeah it's it i think to that to to that degree i was i don't necessarily know if this movie does the thing that i talk about with a, a lot of the other movies that i've i really do love is when movies have every single thing that happens ultimately plays a part yeah, uh, I don't necessarily know if that's true of this movie, but there was never a time where I felt like I would delete a scene because it's just like the experience of this movie is so unique mm-hmm. to anything else I've ever seen that the whether it's a novelty or not, I'm down for the novelty. Like even if it's just <laughs> a, a little thing, I, I, I like how it chose to do it and it made for a much more interesting and are a much more interesting experience that will stick with me far past it uh but yeah uh, i think Josh, they probably
0: or that i probably could have done without the masturbation scene or like the handjob scene i guess
1: oh that was important
0: man I mean, she was you just had to see that this mom beating that thing raw he, there's no way he left there with skin <laughs> on his dick like no way
1: <laughs> <laughs> see that just
3: brings up a discussion where in what fucking world is a handjob quid pro quo for anything hand jobs are awful
1: they're a waste okay. of time i can hey. do
3: it better than you leave me alone
1: <laughs> i actually that that's so funny I, I there's a comedian that has a joke about that it's like why would i want you to beat my dick like i know what i want and i can get it done right. <laughs> you have you know ever tried
3: jerking off with your left hand it's the same thing it doesn't work so i'm
2: left-handed bro Okay, so so have you ever tried jerking
3: off with your right hand? Because it doesn't work? (laughs) Exactly.
2: Yeah. So uh, his right hand's mechanical, so it feels like a stranger.
1: mm. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. I think it's like a, a, I'm pretty sure it's a foreign commercial, if I'm remembering right, maybe French. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a commercial where there's like a a teenage uh, boy and his girlfriend in their room, and she's going to give him a hand job, and they're clearly like inexperienced, and she's like holding it, and he's like trying to tell her, you know what to do or whatever and he's like you know d- you know it's like ketchup you know and he's trying to get her like you he know like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then she takes a and when he says it's like ketchup she's like oh okay and she just takes the top of her hand like she <laughs> takes her hand and just starts beating the shit out of the top of her dick as soon as i saw this hand job scene in this movie it made me think of that i was like oh totally there's no about that no Holy way shit. that's pleasurable <laughs> um but yeah no definitely a good call out chris i i liked (laughs) i liked that the scene was like we talked about how the mom was like you didn't necessarily know how she cared to me that was kind of the moment it was like she was trying to get to the bottom of what was going on and like trying to see like if it was her husband's fault so that maybe i I don't know if the movie was necessarily going this way but i kind of had a feeling of like if it was her husband's fault was her husband going to be entered into the possibility of who do we kill like maybe you kill yourself and that'll save us because it's still a loss in the family or is, is the movie trying to imply that he has to kill one of his other three yeah, it has to be a loss so that for he him. can
0: yeah exactly it's an eye so, for an eye type thing i think
1: yeah and i thought so too but not necessarily <laughs> that the mom you know maybe she was looking at other stuff but I, I guess it was to me it was like well she's willing to do whatever it takes to try and understand what's going on uh and she's clearly watching for the kids and helping them and doing stuff so it's a movie that as that discomfort builds with everything going on and as they all become more and more aware of what's supposed to be happening it's just like becomes a dysfunctional family when at the very beginning they're relatively functional like of course you got the young kid who's kind of not doing what he's supposed to be doing but you have the daughter who's like walking the dog and supposed to be you know the kid's supposed to be watering the plants and Mm -hmm. they all have their unit set up it's like well hey you do this and i do this and you do that and we all come together as a family and knock this out as the movie progresses, gets more and more broken down until it's like, well, none of that even matters anymore. And now we're just in a dysfunctional family mode.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I don't know. For what it's worth the way they communicated about those basic things it definitely i think indicated underlying dysfunction not not that this family was ever a a portrait of normalcy or being well adjusted or loving or any quality you would want your family to have ideally but yeah it was definitely one of those things of like oh that's cool that they're pitching in but also like every other aspect about this feels like they're they feel like roommates not family (laughs) yeah i don't know
1: it it didn't feel that disjointed from the way that i was brought up Mm. Uh, my dad would be like hey this has got to be done i do this and you and your brother do this
2: oh i didn't mean like uh, responsibility delegation wise i yeah, just know
1: I, yeah I, I, and i get what you mean i think and it goes back to the dialogue of the delivery makes it feel more dry and not like mm-hmm. it's teaching you a lesson so much as it's just like pull your weight you fucking asshole <laughs> 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 uh, can
2: i which you would never say to your kids <laughs> i mean maybe in this movie maybe <laughs> uh, can I derail all of us I have Absolutely. a bone to pick Absolutely about this not. movie uh, now okay. the spaghetti scene is a feci- it's especially effective at getting under your skin everything about it from like he's wearing a white t-shirt which is like you're not supposed to wear a white t-shirt when you're eating spaghetti bro you're asking for trouble <laughs> um, <laughs> and also just like all of his like dialogue the way he's like so like he's got a punchable face by the way Martin um, yeah. like I'm not advocating for child 100%. abuse but like that's a very punchable phase. no abuse him that's fine yeah. <laughs> like it's I, I don't know if it's more like on a scale of like abuse severity is it worse to punch Martin or is it worse to give the kids in Mary Poppins opium Uh, I, I, I want a study done
0: <laughs> how about we give Martin opium and punch the kids in Mary Poppins
2: I feel like if Martin was on opium he'd do like okay. a doc. he'd do like a Professor X like accidentally kill everybody kind of thing <laughs> Um, okay but uh, all right to get to the bone i have to pick uh spaghetti is the worst form of pasta and watching close-ups of someone eat it messily is like my own personal hell (laughs) interesting (laughs) interesting hot
1: take from mr josh lago here i i'm perfectly fine with spaghetti i do think that i agree with you is that as much as i okay i'm not gonna i i can't down talk mac and cheese i just can't but mac and cheese and spaghetti are like the two most commonly eaten forms of pasta because they're so easy to make mm-hmm. so i th- I, th- I do think you're right at least <laughs> on the turn like on the the side of more savory pasta Spaghetti's kind of like bottom of the tier you know it's like yeah. lowest totem pole it's still good i, I like spaghetti, spaghetti.
0: But I would yeah. rather have Alfredo. Sure.
1: Hey, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I just rather
0: have, especially or like a, chicken or shrimp Alfredo or lasagna, both, both or of those. you know, not yeah. a lasagna no. fan.
2: And I mean, marinara I mean, is totally carrying the dish. But here's the thing: you can have marinara and other indeed. types of noodles. You could have penne and have way less of the mess. Because here's the thing: for oh, see, I how much use marinara? Oh, I mean obviously like do what you like but i think if you're making it that way like you've at least got the option of like spaghetti is like a food that you have to work for to like like it's a little bit more effort even though it's not like work it's not like eating lobster or anything but like there's something about i feel like as soon as food requires more effort than shovel to face it has to be like a little bit extra good and i think spaghetti neglects to go that extra mile
0: like crab legs If, if crab legs were not very like delicious like no one would eat them sure Cause it that's takes true. 20 minutes to eat one <laughs>
2: that's true so uh
1: before we get back on the track i want to i want to do one more close off for spaghetti uh due to a tragic incident when i was probably eight years spaghetti old incident of eating spaghetti and being sick for whatever reason and having to throw the spaghetti
0: up oh god um, did you like swallow noodles whole? <laughs> you were, like, so throwing yes, up entire so, noodles.
1: <laughs> yes. So as a kid, I kind of like you know the way they show you spinning the spaghetti up and eating it. I'm like, oh shit, that's what you're supposed to do. And then I would just like do that and swallow it whole.
0: <laughs> so basically, so, you were like the girl from the ring, like pulling
1: out noodles. <laughs> essentially. So what happened? And it's so it's it's my most vivid and just worst memory <laughs> is uh, I was going to throw up and as i was throwing up you know how like when you're like viscerally throwing up that you have to like take that short breath gasp for you to keep throwing up (laughs) it's a a core workout mid noodles coming out of my throat i did that breathe thing and i like inhaled noodles (laughs) and from that day onward to this day i do not eat spaghetti like that I get spaghetti. I don't put it in a bowl. I put it on a plate, which my boy Martin did. So, shout out. Uh, I put it on a plate and I flatten it out as much as I can. And then I take my fork and I chop it into like little half yeah. inch things all <laughs> across the whole plate. And then just scoop that shit up and eat it and make sure it's got a shitload of cheese on it, which is delicious. But uh, you flatten it on the plate, like
0: you mush it down.
1: No, it's, instead of making the pile be rounded, and boneless, oh, gotcha. I, just go, just I go like, yeah, smoothly spread it out, across yeah.
0: the whole plate. Yeah, I thought you meant you so, like, like mash it down with like a spatula or something. I was like, what the when, fuck are you doing with your spaghetti? It's a hash.
1: <laughs> when people see me eat spaghetti, they're like, "What the fuck, bro? You're eating spaghetti wrong." And I'm you like, go to "Listen,
0: Garden, you're like, can you bring me a spatula with mine?"
1: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, please, I need to, I need to cut this up. Could you, uh, could you just tell the, the chef to send it to me pre-cut, please? <laughs> but Just just a weird spaghetti story to close that off.
2: Bring me the spaghetti scissors. Uh,
1: So, speaking of food, we got to go back to a pretty interesting scene that I am curious as to your guys' take on this because I I think... I don't know that the movie necessarily shows that this is the way, but I feel like there's an implication here that prior to the revelation from Martin that what's happening to his kid uh, is kind of like a payback for the loss of his dad. You know, before that we see Martin inviting Steven over and trying to get him to meet his mom. His mom flirts with him and tries to get him to go. The movie kind of gives you the implication that prior to the events that really make up the rest of the movie of the the ultimate d- decision between the family breaking down and having to choose who dies so that they don't all die mm. is uh it seems like if Stephen were to essentially leave his family behind and become Martin's father and and be with his mother and kind of be his new family, yeah. that none of Stephen's existing family would have had any hurt. But since Stephen started distancing himself more and kind of turning the mom down, that it became like, well, if you can't be my father, uh, then you're going to have to take the same loss that I do so that we both live with the same
0: pain. Mm-hmm. Well, his mom even said, and I quote, he wants this as much as I do, mm-hmm. so... <laughs> This is genuinely weird.
1: Yeah, that's what. A, what a way to get somebody to like you know, try and get dirty with you. You know what I mean? You it's can like, fuck oh, me.
0: My son wants you to anyways. <laughs> like, like,
1: oh, don't don't worry, man. My son wants you to fuck me just as much as I do.
0: Whoa. Okay. Wait a minute.
2: Is he gonna be is watching? He, watching?
0: <laughs> is
1: he
2: like he's like hiding in the closet, like watching through like the blinds.
1: Oh. Uh, uh, so did anybody else pick up on that though? I mean, is that kind of was that generally what everybody thought? yeah
3: i think i almost wonder if he didn't even have to date the mom he could have just kept
1: hanging out with the kid i thought that with martin yeah you know like if he hadn't started distancing himself and then maybe it still would have but i don't know i really do get the feeling that martin's twisted mental state made him think that it was like all the time being spent with him was more towards building to the ultimate like you're gonna be with my mom and be my new dad in the full on role, not just coming to see me occasionally and making time for me, but also having to make time for your family where I can't see you and you can't, you know, because his dad would have always been around. Stephen being around partially yeah. is not really the ultimate fill in. So I think Martin, what Martin wanted was something to happen that would put Stephen in his fatherly role permanently. Yeah,
2: that's fair. I, I guess I don't know if I felt like that was always, like, the definite plan. Like, it it definitely was the first thing that they tried, but I guess I, I, I don't trust Martin to live in that weird, idyllic family fantasy for long before eventually wanting a more like visceral form of revenge
1: oh yeah yeah like even if it would have satiated him for a period how long would have
2: lasted yeah like i feel like he'd still be just you know sitting across the table from the dude who killed his dad and he'd be pissed about that
1: maybe and you know one of the things about that is interesting to me the movie takes place from what i understand like three years after the death of his father mm. so why does it take martin three years to get to this point and of course you know we're suspension of disbelief over what the hell martin is doing because this surgeon was loose in his responsibility and i love that this this is very much a consequences of your actions movie in just a really fucking perverted way uh but it's I kind of wonder I'm like why does it take 3 years? Why 3 years later? Not that there has to be a reason, but is there a reason that was like left on the editing room floor or that's implied that I didn't pick up? Is it a coming of age thing like as Martin starts to come of age without his father around? It, I don't know. There's a lot of questions I had in regards to why did it take so long and then suddenly once it started and the movie kind of implies that martin and steven have only recently like in the in the most recent months uh started being uh, you know started seeing each other Mm -hmm. so why in that in between time did nothing happen
2: yeah i I don't know of a compelling reason
1: for that (laughs) i wonder if like the catalyst of steven starting to spend some time with martin opened up the the void kind of of like Up until the catalyst for it being that Stephen trying to come in and be like a father figure way down the road kind of opened Martin's eyes to the fact that he was missing a father figure and that became like the here we are and now I don't have a father and I'm seeing how much that I'm really missing that presence and that's why this kind of happens but then again not that the movie is bad for it but since the movie's not clear as to why it's happening like you know why this event is happening is martin the one actually doing it seems like it considering that the daughter can suddenly walk and stand and go to the window when he's on the phone with her or is this just the universe playing some kind of weird crazy game and we don't really we're never meant to know i don't think Mm -hmm. it's just supposed to be that vague like well this is happening you don't have to understand why you just have to understand why it's a traumatic experience
2: right,
1: <laughs> for everyone involved.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I always got the impression that the movie was making it very clear that it's like, the, the, Martin has some sort of supernatural ability and he's using this as a tool of vengeance, but you know yeah beyond that and i i read a little bit of you know feedback on this movie and reviews on this movie and it seems like i don't know i've seen people make a lot of really good points for why it's more interesting that it's completely not explained as opposed to it having to be some kind of as soon as you know what's causing it you're suddenly way more fixated on the mechanics of the power than just you know if you can just accept you know fine it's a movie he can do this let's move on here are the interesting things that mm. happen because of this
1: a, a lot of movies actually kind of play that too uh I don't know if you guys watched bird box um but the netflix sandra bullock movie Um, i have not one of the things that they did in production is at one point in time the monsters of the movie had a physical form Mm. and as they kept going through and going through they were going to be completely cgi but as they kept going through it became evident as they kept trying to trial things that the only way to actually give it the tenseness that it needed was to make it to where even though the people themselves can see the, the, the monsters essentially themselves take the form of whatever the, it's, it's kind of like it's where they take the form of whatever the people wanted the most so it's going to look different for everybody so trying to get a look that all viewers would be seeing the same didn't really work and it acted as a disconnect mm-hmm. so the only way it was tense is for them to completely make it to where you don't see the monsters there's just implications that they're there yeah And I feel like you're right. Once you put a face on that, it kills the effect. So in this, once you put a reason behind what's happening, no longer are you focusing on the right part of what it's supposed to be leaning towards. You're focused only on how that's even possible to be happening.
2: Like like that's, that's a really effective use of restraint. I think too, like, with Bird Box, that's Bird that's Box. so... People have different tastes. They have different fears. So what scares one person can be goofy as fuck to the next person. <laughs> that's kind of like the most effective way you make it scary to someone is let it be undetermined and let their imagination conjure the thing that they would be afraid of in that situation. That's something that I think applies to this movie in a different way. I don't know. You can kind of come up with your own explanation for why Martin can do this or you can skip right over it and just focus on the movie. But ultimately, yeah, the movie seems i think right in assuming that the more interesting shit is the interpersonal stuff so you know let's just focus on that
1: no i feel uh just as a quick not like really a derail but just a a shout out did anybody pay attention to the groundhog day cameo yes i noticed that too (laughs) Yep, i I didn't didn't even notice either
2: time (laughs) groundhog day cinematic universe
1: Yeah, the uh, Groundhog Day was the father's favorite movie that he keeps trying to get, that he gets um, Stephen to sit down and watch with him, but they couldn't finish. And I love that the scene Mm -hmm. they chose to go to, and I actually feel like this was super purposeful. Not only because it's iconic scene, but I think it plays into the kind of weird, supernatural (laughs) aspect of this movie, Mm -hmm. is that the scene where... Which Groundhog Day already is like supernatural in its own weird way. So, good choice. But the scene where he's in the diner and he's guessing everything correctly, and he's like, I'm a god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it cuts off pretty shortly after that, like you know, it, or at least it goes to where it's background audio. But I feel like the movie very purposely wanted to land on the part of I'm a god and having it be something that Martin was doing. And right after that, right after he says I'm a god, Martin gets up and is like, sorry I'm tired, I can't finish the movie. I like it's just like a weird play towards the fact that Martin is going to have some kind of interesting power. <laughs> yeah. So uh, another thing that is just interesting throughout the movie that I'm curious if anybody else picked up on. Do you notice that throughout the movie? Suddenly, everyone besides the youngest kid starts to smoke. Yep. Yeah. Like, it was weird because I was like, nobody's smoking in this movie. Then Martin's smoking. Then the mom's smoking, mm. the smoking. Then the daughter's smoking. Then the dad's smoking. And it seems like smoking becomes more and more frequent as the movie goes on. Yeah. I don't know what the, I mean, I'm trying to think of like, I guess because you know, people view being stressed with smoking a lot of the time. That's what people that's like what makes people go towards it. Definitely if they've had a history of it before. So I don't know if it's as the movie gets more tense and more stressful, the situation gets more stressful for the family uh, that they're moving towards it. I just thought it was interesting. It's just an odd thing to be like. God, everybody's suddenly smoking in this movie.
2: Yeah, like like the cast themselves were just so stressed while filming this. They're like, you know what? Fuck it. I need a cigarette. Like, just keep rolling. Who cares?
1: Wouldn't that be actually like the craziest explanation for that? Like, it just turns out that everybody's like, filming this uh, movie is pretty taxing <laughs> uh, because it's so weird and just weighty and the stuff we're talking about so it's like it's emotionally taxing and stressful so yeah we just kind of smoke and they're like oh, no, no, just write it in write it in <laughs>
2: that's, that's that's part of it now yeah <laughs> in movie wise it, it does kind of feel like it's like a vi- just a visual representation of like you know once martin's got his claws in you like because he's he smokes so much and it's just like now you see his influence on the people around him by their they're starting to adopting his trait yeah Yeah, that's actually a
1: good way to kind of view it. I mean, that's essentially the way I was thinking of it, but that's a better way to word it for sure. So one of the things in relation to the smoking thing that was kind of interesting to me is like you have the smoking thing going on and the movie continuously shows it more and more and uses it as a visual representation of the feeling of everybody involved as, yeah, best way to say it, yeah, Martin's getting under your skin. Um, It's the fact that the movie has that, but it's also coinciding with what seems like a fairly anti-alcohol message, you know? Because mm. as the movie goes on, of course, the 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 reason for all of this is that Stephen had been drinking. And I like that they mentioned that so early in the movie. Like, it's been three years since I've had a drink, and then they later be like, oh, yeah, this is a guy that did surgery on three years ago. So we know that at least Stephen has kind of been languishing and, like, k- beating himself up over what happened. Yeah. Uh, and that was seems like the catalyst as to why he quit drinking. Um, Absolutely, but yeah, I thought that was just. I I, I guess I view. And I don't know if it's just me. I view smoking and and drinking as very similar things. So when somebody's like, and, like, not that they don't smoke, but like when they're anti-smoking and then they drink, or they're anti-drinking and then they smoke, it's mm-hmm. like okay. <laughs> like it's kind of just two sides of the same coin. It's this is the way I kind of view it. Yeah. It was just interesting to me that the movie would go towards that. And I, I don't know.
2: I agree with you on that. Uh, I feel like, and I'm curious if any of you guys got a chance to read that link I put in the discord I guess it would have been like last week.
1: Yeah, so I, I actually didn't because I figured you would talk about it in the episode and worst case scenario, I'd let the episode go, not let it affect anything I had to say and then we'd either discuss it in the episode or I'd finally read it afterwards. But if you want to go ahead and discuss it, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see what it kind of talked about.
2: Yeah, all good. Uh, the shortest, the, the most relevant parts are this is basically based off of a Greek tragedy. Uh, Euripides, I'm not going to pretend I can pronounce that, but it's uh, one of the (laughs) final I guess it's the final thing this dude wrote before he died Uh, it's part of a trilogy written in his final years before his death but it's it's about this warlord basically who is sieging Troy and he views himself as just kind of unstoppable. I I guess it's a whole thing where he has to sacrifice his daughter to the goddess Artemis who's fucking with the winds preventing him from having his fleet arrive to Troy and it's this whole thing he views himself as unstoppable so Artemis is kind of like well you're not there are greater powers here. His fatal sin in this case is vanity and i feel like the the alcohol was kind of like an indication of his vanity as like a surgeon as far as like being willing to be so like loose with the hippocratic oath treating his job seriously and then that sort of punishment for the mistake fitting this sort of theme you know just the greek tragedy no you're gonna suffer through this yeah i guess the last thing to mention is he's the protagonist of this tragedy has to sacrifice their daughter and switches it out with a sacred deer instead as like a bait and switch kind of thing like oh you thought i'd actually killed my daughter but really it's just the sacred deer but that's kind of where the name comes from anyway but i am not a scholar on this so i will neglect to try to connect further dots
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad you brought that up because one of the big things i had after watching the movie was like Okay, but why the name? Like, I love the name. It sticks with you because it's a really interesting name. And then I think it sticks with you even more that there's like nothing to do with deer in this movie at all. Not that that has to matter. But it's just one of those things where I was curious as to where that came from. And that's uh, interesting. I love when people do adaptations like this. Clearly, they use this as an inspiration. But even though it's essentially like a form of adaptation, it's almost more like an original story just crafted with that in mind. Yeah. Because uh, it's so different than what you just described, but still has a lot of the same basic kickbacks. You know, that's the thing about like storytelling in general. People always say, like, you know, go back to Greek writing. It's like pretty much everything's been written mm-hmm. as a way. So most stories are some kind of callback to a Greek, you know, some kind mm-hmm. of Greek tragedy or comedy or whatever. Um, yeah. To go back to, to what you were talking about with the, uh, you know, the the problem being like. How how overconfident he is with himself as a surgeon and everything, and that being like a, a, a kind of a tie into the vanity of uh, of the actual story of Euripides, as you were saying. Uh, I like the idea of the movie kind of referencing that with the fact that whenever the wife talks to her, her husband Stephen about it, he's like, uh, "A surgeon can never kill uh, on the table. Ha- you know, a surgeon can never do that. Mm-hmm. It has to be an anesthesiologist." And then she goes and talks to the anesthesiologist and he's like no nah, no nah, anesthesiologist can never mess up it's got to be the surgeon yeah <laughs> like it's both it's to me i was like it's an indication that this guy who's his colleague is just as egotistical and overly certain of himself like he suffers from the same problems essentially but we're not focusing on him it's just funny just to see that someone else in the world is so closely related has the exact same problem
3: i wanted to say one thing about the greek story it came from the report that the teacher mm-hmm. was talking about the
1: principal i guess that the daughter wrote was yeah.
3: about that greek story
1: oh you're talking about and that's uh, you're talking about when the dad goes and he's kind of like trying to quantify the kid's value to determine which one to to say yes dude that scene again exactly that scene is so it made me laugh i'm like in the in an uncomfortable way i yeah. was just like what is he doing i thought it was great though yeah, no, it was fantastic. It really was. That's cool. I didn't know that. That's uh, I didn't see that, but that's really interesting. Good way to kind of put your inspiration into the movie is like an Easter egg.
2: Yeah, it's almost like a tell. Yeah.
1: I want to go to the very end real quick because we're kind of talking about the ending and how open it is. Is there... You know the, one of the first things we see in the movie is steven going to the diner and meeting with martin and then martin saying how he saves his fries uh for last because they're his favorite thing and then we know that the daughter throughout this movie has kind of got this odd infatuation with martin that almost seems like it's part of a supernatural draw like she's yeah he's making her do this so that he can kind of get into the family you know i don't know if it has any maybe it's just cuz he's fucking with Steven at this at this point you know what i mean uh-huh. but at the very end of the movie the camera spends a lot of time kind of showing that the daughter is eating her fries first and like looking and peering yeah. over at martin and i i was trying to read into that i was like you know is this like she's free of his spell now and it's like a fuck you to martin cuz she knows that he ate his fries first and kind of being like guess what bitch mm. there's nothing for you here yeah (laughs) or was it like in a weird way signaling to martin like i like how vague and open the ending is it's like clearly the parents are down but i don't feel like the end of the movie is necessarily entirely clear as to where the daughter stands on everything that's happened
2: yeah i I totally agree i I was trying to get a read from her facial expression but uh it Seemed, you know, not downtrodden, but like I couldn't tell if she was like, you know, defiance of Martin or still interested in him or what.
1: Yeah, yeah or defiance of her parents, maybe. And like th- it was a very vague and hard face to read, which, I, you know, I know we've already talked about the dialogue, but. That goes back to so much of this movie, not even dialogue, but just visually speaking with with the way they choose to show things and give it context or not context so that you're left with kind of an ambiguity uh, about what's going on. That's that's one of the biggest things that I think the movie's trying to do with every bit of it is to try and make every scene hard to read completely because it's just shrouded in vagueness and ambiguity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess not every scene but it seems like a vast majority of the scenes are kind of open for like a little bit of like huh you're not gonna necessarily get everything from from every scene without having to kind of call back and look at something else that happens to give the right context to the previous scene yeah so when you're watching it for the first time it's really not in a bad way but it's like a constantly keeping you on your toes kind of thing you know
2: i agree i mean it's if anything it makes me while i do feel like my individual watching of this movie wasn't like you know i'm not like over the moon about it like i enjoyed it and i'm stoked that we get to discuss it more because it you know kind of unearths more things to appreciate about it uh yeah but yeah this is definitely one that i'm eager to check out the director's other works and then come back to this and see if Having a better understanding for those for the type of storytelling he does, if I appreciate this movie more.
1: Sure. Uh, all right. So I think the last thing for me, and then we can kind of just talk about scenes that everybody liked that we haven't already covered naturally. Uh, I would just I would be remiss to not shout out, and I know we do this often, and I I think me and <laughs> me and Josh tend to be the people that point it out more often than not is just how masterfully the music has worked into this, mm, and yes. Josh one of the things you said earlier is that this movie shows a lot of a lot of restraint mm-hmm. and like yeah but yeah the music is very tied into that yes. so much of this movie will choose to have nothing on to build tension in the scene mm-hmm. or crank up the tension to 11 with just the craziest sounding atmosphere building behind it um and i think that the the way the movie starts the opening shot of the heart and the really interesting like I don't even know how to describe the, the tone of the music that's at the beginning but as crazy as it is like when I think back to the intro I'm like I don't know why that simple visual of a heart and this really interesting musical backing it sets a perfect tone for the movie mm-hmm. And I like when stuff does that. It's like you're you're setting a tone up front with everything that you can, and then the, mo- the music just continues to do such a good job of carrying scenes uh, either with its presence or with its absence either way. Yeah.
2: And I mean, something that was super interesting about the music for me was like not only was just the featuring of the music very restrained, but the music itself was incredibly restrained. I mean, it was so – like it would just be like a chord and like a filter swell on a keyboard, or it would be these weird mm-hmm. like – almost, it, it was less like compositions and more just like textures and creepy sounds, but still clearly in the realm of like, you know, it, it still felt like a soundtrack. It, it didn't just feel like sound effects or anything, but it was, yeah, it, it did a, such yeah. an, it did such an interesting job of being an iconic score yet. I couldn't like hum a single like melody or anything, but I think that's <laughs> the point.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. It's just that it becomes iconic and how effective it works within its body. But it's not necessarily meant to be something. You're right because it's so droning and uh, and and a lot of swells and a lot of letting things just start and build and become monumentous before just dropping off. Uh, it's. Really good use of music. Uh, yeah. But go ahead and cap off with any kind of scenes that uh, anybody liked, be it just you know the, the actions within the scene or just uh, a scene that you thought was well shot. Uh, I'm going to bounce over to Chris since he's been quiet. For all the stuff that you may not have liked about this movie, mm. Chris, were there any scenes that you just really enjoyed?
3: So I guess the only scene that I personally want to talk about is the ending. And I don't really like the ending but I think the one thing about the ending that I do like and why it's the one scene I'll call out is because it does stick with the one theme I think that this movie really nails, and that's uh, the father's complete and utter unwillingness to take responsibility for anything. (laughs) And I think that is just perfectly shown by the end of the movie.
1: So just to give context in case someone hasn't seen the movie for a little bit, the final scene that we've already kind of talked about is when they're sitting in the diner uh, and you see them eating and then they look over and Martin is also eating. And you can just tell from the look that the parents are giving that it's all on Martin, which the funny part Mm -hmm. is like you as the viewer kind of have that moment of where you're like, well, technically it is all on Martin, but... The starting of all this that caused Martin to do this is the actions of the father. So, as much as he may want to try and say it's all Martin, at least in some part, it has to be at Mm. least some of his fault. I meant the
3: actual like shooting. However, this does also where they're clearly passing the blame on to Martin, where they watch him as they're leaving. But the shooting is the part that I actually mean when I say this, where he completely, I don't know what the right word is, but just Mm -hmm. gives away the responsibility. Where he's like, I'm not making this decision. I'm just going to do it randomly. And it's like, no. I mean, the whole movie is him not taking responsibility. It's him lying about Martin's father. It's him lying to his wife that everything's going to be a fine and the kids are going to stand up and it's him oh the, it's the surgeon's fault mm-hmm. when he was drunk it just continues throughout this whole movie where the guy is trying to do everything quote unquote, making everything perfect and then when it's not perfect yeah. it's somebody else's fault and i think that that scene just randomly
1: killing someone shows it yeah, very well i agree interesting i i agree and at the same time have a little bit of a feeling that While I do think it still goes to show that he doesn't want to take full responsibility, I empathize with the fact of the movie kind of showing that he's trying to go and make an actual decision and do it in the best possible way he can. he's trying to find an objectively good way to make a decision for something that is also objectively fucking terrible <laughs>
3: uh mm. well i guess i guess the thing is for me and maybe i should have said this at the beginning or maybe i shouldn't say this because it'll ruin all my prospective relationships for the next forever but i think there's a very easy decision and it's you kill your wife
1: (laughs) All right, girls like honestly like I know that's fucked up uh, just know that Chris is a really (laughs) nice guy and (laughs) the chances of a boy who you accidentally kill his father coming back and forcing the situation are pretty low so don't worry about it
3: yeah. I'm I don't have the uh steady hands to be a surgeon. I might be an anesthesiologist and maybe I'll kill someone that way. But for now i uh I shouldn't say that
1: either. But
3: It'd be <laughs> definitely, be if you, in case I ever do decide it, I want to be an, if you anesthesiologist. Ever an
1: anesthesiologist and they just dig this up and they're like, Um, excuse me? Uh sorry dude. Um Yeah. Fuck, I lost I lost
3: the plot on that one, but but you said you kill um, your wife. Uh, so, I yeah, mean. I don't. Yeah, it, but it's it, but that's the thing, and I want to couch it a little bit with it. Kind of goes back to where I was saying the mother doesn't love her children because in my opinion i could be wrong i don't have kids and i also don't have a wife so i could be wrong that i would want to kill my wife over my kids quote unquote wanna right but i think any parent and i guess brett and blake you guys can attest to this i think the immediate thing is we would never kill our children we would rather kill each other right like that to me seems like the typical parent reaction yeah yeah
1: no for sure no I mean I'll definitely right. tell you that and I, I I mean it's weird I had this conversation at work today. Uh one of my coworkers is mm. is pregnant this is her first kid. Uh, and she kind of jokingly but at the same time she you know she was like we were talking about whether she wanted a boy or a girl and she mentioned you know yeah. I don't want a girl cuz I don't want Trevor to love her more than he loves me. And I said, "Well, I hate to tell you no matter what I was like I love my wife." I was like, and as weird as it is to yeah. say, I was like, I, I love my daughter more. I was like, it's a different kind of love, and it's just, I was like, but it's it's hard to quantify, right. but it's just like, something about a kid coming from you and I, I think at least you know for most people there are of course people that just don't have these same connections right but there's something about a kid coming from you and it's even weird not even i'd honestly just say there's something about kids even if it's not i think that even yeah. people who adopt their kids there's something about kids that when you connect with them the 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 basis of the relationship is so different and i think because you both grow mm-hmm. together in a very different sense that it's almost like a right. A connection that's so hard to compare to a normal romantic connection that it's like i i I agree i mean i don't uh, that's why i empathize with him trying to go through and figure out what his best option was like across the board like who do i kill why do i kill them it's because like the the desperation of the moment in general i i I agree with you just to give that uh i don't know if blake wants Mm. to chime in on the kid thing (laughs) But uh, I agree with you that my first thing when watching the movie was like, Kill the wife. You know, it's like, I, I get that it yeah. sucks and that for a lot of reasons, like, you know, you, you love her. Clearly, you don't want to, you know, for what we can tell. But <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah, I tend to go with the thing of like, the thing about kids, and I think a lot of people view this, yeah. I tend to be on the side of, if you're put in a situation, uh, like, we can go back to the Belko experiment in a weird way. <laughs> I may, have even, I may oh. have even said this in the Belko experiment. So, in the decision to have to, to, to kill people, I would be looking at it from the, who are the oldest? the oldest people have lived the longest they've lived the most full lives i think the youngest people should get to stay alive because they've experienced a lot less life and in the situation of kids that's only further exaggerated it's like this is a kid who's barely had the yeah. opportunity to live, to live life now the movie kind of touches on that with her being like well you know they they're you know they we could replace the kid and like it would be the thing that you would most you most quickly recover from in a weird sense it's like you know if you have a eight year old kid in eight years you can have another eight year old kid. Not that it's the same kid, but yeah, you know, it's it's I I tend to view it from that standpoint of like I don't see how I'd be able to kill my own kid. But on top of that there's the objective side of me that's like the wife has lived the good. She like, you know, they're they're clearly in like their late forties or or fifties. So it's like Mm. you've lived a pretty good life. And I'm like if this is what we have to do and this is the only thing I can do to make up for my mistakes I I feel like the mom should also be offering herself up a little bit.
3: Absolutely. That was the thing that unsettled me the most about the mom is she shouldn't be sitting there bargaining with the husband. If anything, she should be like, why is this a conversation? And I think that's the point where I keep saying that she doesn't love her kids.
1: To give her just a hair of credit, and I mean a hair because it's very little, it's very easy to talk about what you would do in a situation versus what you would do when you're actually put in that situation definitely one that's as impossible as this where it almost feels like this isn't even really real like there's no way this is actually what's happening this is just a weird coincidence Mm -hmm. and as you're faced more and more with the fact that it has to that there has to be a decision made because you're seeing more and more proof that this is not just a coincidence the brain's pretty crazy and sometimes you think you know what you would do when you wouldn't Yeah, I guess I get that. I just think it's one of those things where
3: if this movie expects you to just read between the lines on a lot of stuff, it wouldn't be that hard to read between the lines of like, oh, she just loves her kids, you know? And that's why she's not making these actions. But I think the movie is conscious of the fact that she doesn't.
1: I'd say it's just like the movie choosing to look, because the movie is rather dark. I think it's choosing to expose some Mm -hmm. of the more sinister human tendencies, which is self-preservation.
3: Yeah. Um I guess the t- kind of ending as a whole I do think it's interesting that The entire family skirts all responsibility for the murder of one of the people in that family, (laughs) Um, which kind of flies in the face of like, oh well, he doesn't take any responsibility. Look at that; he's rewarded for not taking any responsibility because he's never going to suffer any consequences with the law. You know, he's just going to go back to being a surgeon with one kid now. How far away are
2: their neighbors, by the way? That they don't hear like several gunshots. Right, that's the same thing. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: All right, uh, Blake. Do you have any uh, that you that you that just stand out to you that you really want to talk about?
0: Um, We've pretty much talked about most of them. The one that I really like just from like a uh, cinematography aspect, I guess, is the escalator shot when the little boy's leaving the hospital, the son. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, it's like really high up and it just follows him down and then just stays where it's at. It's got to be like 40 or 50 feet up, it seems like, as he like collapses again at the bottom of the escalator. Yeah. I just thought that was really well shot. But besides that, we've pretty much covered everything. That that's actually the only. That's
1: my cinematography note for this. Is like my favorite visually mm. put together scene is that same scene where Bob is coming down and collapses. Not only is it beautifully and interestingly shot with its camera angle, but the yeah. score for that moment. Yeah. Is oh, so good, so tense, yeah. and it just really adds to that moment. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. it adds to the discomfort. This, this movie is <laughs> all about discomfort. <laughs>
0: I think the cinematography throughout the whole film added to the discomfort because a lot of the shots are very far away from people. Mm-hmm. There are very few close-ups, if any, like on faces or anything. Mm-hmm. There are some like mid shots, you know, from like the waist up and stuff. But a lot of shots in this movie are really far away, which I think adds to like the feeling of uneasiness mm-hmm. and disconnectedness. You know, it's like yeah, for sure. You go, Chris, did you have something to chime in there?
3: Yeah, I just thought like I won't spoil what I what I rate the movie, but. The only reason I didn't rate it lower was because of the cinematography, where I really enjoyed looking at the movie. So I, that is significantly the best part.
2: And yeah, okay, so uh, Josh, got you
1: got any scenes that we haven't covered that you're just you want to throw some uh, some love at or some discussion?
2: Ah, uh, God, it, it's honestly hard to call any out. I feel like you guys call out a lot of the ones that stood out to me for all the same reasons that you pointed out. We we did the whole <laughs> the kitchen scene where he's just like I. I I actually loved like all the dialogue in it because it encapsulated like how completely nonsense a lot of spousal arguments can be and usually being started over something really stupid or in this case one person being completely clueless to the current emotions of the other and finding out very quickly that mashed potatoes are not on your wife's mind right now actually yeah like her whole delivery about that of just like how like stupid she thinks he is like that was fucking funny and then just the whole like him tearing up the kitchen being like oh hell yeah, like coming up with like the dumb shit that he's looking for <laughs> I, I think that one was the most entertaining like that one like it, it was a breath of relief at least yeah. after like the movie being so fucking tense like this was tense too but at least it was also like funny in a way that it felt like i could laugh at
3: i laughed when he goes to his wife and it's like <laughs> you got any pubes and i'm like homie she's not a virgin you fucked her like 20 minutes ago in this movie but, so what well, are Mark you talking he's about like, well you
1: clearly don't have any so <laughs> let's move on to the next part <laughs> uh now that scene uh that scene is not only funny and acts as good comedic relief while also showing how tense and stressed out the family are i think it also goes towards the only other scene that i wanted to talk about is it's right around close to that same time uh where martin is uh bound up to a chair in their basement Mm -hmm. and it's when it's when you kind of see i think that there's i think that this movie's set up even though no one dies you kind of have like the stages of grief going on where it's like or whatever it is uh the the five stages where it's like they go through and they have like their denial that it's not actually real and then they have their bargaining and acceptance and The other two that I can never fully remember. Uh, But anyway, you kind of see that happening here where it's like they're going through this because they're grieving for something that hasn't happened yet, but they know is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And that scene in the kitchen... I think really shows how desperate everyone is and i think for as careless as the father seems for mentioning the potatoes i like that for him it was kind of like all i was asking from you dear wife is for you to just allow me some small window of time to where i can just be in a fantasy land where i don't have to deal with the weight of this 24 7 like i just want uh, i want to pretend for a little bit that we're not in the situation we are give me that ability to just be in blissful ignorance for a little bit and mm-hmm. at the same time her need to be like we need you to come to terms with what's going on so that a decision can be made and you see that going on everyone's kind of doing they're showing just how desperate they're getting at different parts yeah Uh, and so the next scene and probably the last one that I want to talk about at all is I thought that it was really interesting for as much as that you have this like the mother doesn't really love the children for her to go down and not first of all she frees uh, Martin in the long run but the scene I'm really thinking about is when she goes down with the kids free of the husband as she's kind of like you know it's my husband's fault she goes down there and she starts kissing Martin's feet oh right and kind of doing this like what can we do why are we paying for his actions what can we do to fix this what can we do to try and help you to try to help this situation they're bargaining mm. and they're kind of going through that and they're showing their absolute desperation and i think that, that was kind of the mother's one hell mary of like let me find a way to save my children and hopefully myself so that we are free from the mistakes, and I and I have that feeling. We're free from the mistakes of my of my husband and their father. And I almost wonder if like part of the reason she doesn't want to die in part of this, but knowing that it has to be that the father lives is like if she's not around, then the kids are just around with the father who's clearly made a bunch of bad decisions. But I thought that her kissing his feet was like a really strong sign of desperation and bargaining to try and get out of this. However she could. So, I, I don't think that... I, I mean, Chris is right in that the movie doesn't just necessarily exude that the mom loves the kids. I think this movie spends a little bit more time trying to show the dad agonizing over having to wrestle with the idea of choosing one. Uh, which comes with the the feeling of, like, getting a little more... You can sense that he has more connection. Because the mom doesn't get as many of those moments. So... I thought that was really just a strong scene and an interesting scene and also just how futile it was as an attempt. Yeah. So, okay, well, I guess we are at the point to where we can close this thing off. So uh, I think before mm-hmm. we do that, we got to remember that we got to rate the movie. Uh, oh, oh, what's this? Oh, it seems like we have a message from the Midweek Manatee coming oh, in. shit. Uh, yeah, uh, what's up, Midweek Manatee? How are you? What up, dude?
3: Calabonga, bro. How you doing?
1: I'm <laughs> Do, uh, doing well. Uh, we watched a very interesting movie, uh, and I know that you keep uh, up with. The, uh, I
3: don't to watch, mean to. I don't but, mean to I, uh, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. Um, I'll I find this cell phone floating in the ocean. Uh, who are you looking for? I'm
1: looking for the midweek manatee. Talking about Craig. Uh No, his name is uh, <laughs> his name is Martin. Martin the midweek manatee. He likes spaghetti. Oh, Martin, he likes spaghetti.
3: My, my, Martin bald last week. Oh.
1: Uh, yeah. Were he, you related to Martin, or was he a friend?
3: <laughs> I, I mean, I I have to assume that all of us are slightly related. <laughs> uh, I, I do happen to be a manatee, but yeah, my, your friend Martin's dead. I just found his phone, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep okay, it.
1: Well, hey, I got a question for you. Are you interested in becoming sure. the new midweek manatee?
3: Yeah, I I guess uh what does that what does that okay, mean for so me?
1: We watched a movie this week, maybe one that you may have seen. Um it's uh, it's it's called The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and we're at the point of the show where we normally oh. kind of give our ratings on that. So, uh, do you want to uh, throw out a rating for this movie?
3: The, just let me hold on. Is that the movie uh, where, after the untimely death of 16 year old Martin's father on the operating table, little by little, a deep and empathetic <laughs> bond begins to form between him and the respective cardioatheric surgeon, Dr. Stephen yeah, that's,
1: Murphy? That's exactly um, the one. Uh, so it sounds like oh, it sounds like so you've seen it. so
3: that yeah, it's the one that starts you know at first expensive gifts and the invitation for dinner will soon earn the orphan teenager the approval of Doctor Stephen's perfect family. Even though right from the start, a vague yet unnerving feeling overshadows Martin, Martin's honest intent. It's that one, Absolutely. right?
1: Absolutely. It sounds like you've uh, it sounds like you've really seen this movie and understand what it's about. So, uh, would you like to throw a rating? Right. No, what do you think of this movie? Can you can you give us a quick
3: um. Well, I don't want to break. I don't want to break from the tradition. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just putting this up for you guys. I don't, I don't. I'm just. I'm trying to disguise my uh, my real voice because. Um, yeah, I, IMDb gives it a seven I would also give it a seven Okay,
1: thanks from the midweek manatee. We're going to convert that to a five star thing. So a seven would be like what a three and a half. Yeah. So- so all right,
3: I, so, I believe you. I don't do math. I'm that's fantasy. true.
1: You're not the the midweek manatee. You're just hey. the midweek manatee now. Okay. Well, uh, we're well, good seeing you, man. Hopefully, we'll get you on to the next episode. Okay. Yeah, uh,
3: you have my number. Exactly. Just call me. Okay.
1: See ya. Uh, are are we, do we call you Martin now? Uh, a
3: second, it, n- I don't. I don't really like the name we're just Martin. Call you the
1: midweek manatee. Uh, that's it. Midweek manatee. Right. It's the sequel. Okay. okay. I, I'm sure. <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Have a good one, Midweek <laughs> Manatee. Okay. Sorry for that little, uh, that little detour there. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed the kind words of, uh, of the Midweek Manatee. Uh, so uh, I guess to go over and uh, save me for last since I'm the host for this week, I'm going to start with uh, Mr. Chris. What do you give this movie? Uh, I gave this movie two and a half stars. Two and a half stars. Okay. And primarily the cinematography saves it for you. Yeah, I, uh,
3: <laughs> so the thing with this movie is I've recommended it to multiple people, um, but without the cinematography,
1: I would probably give it a one. <laughs> Ouch. Okay. Uh, Blake, <laughs> you're up next. Having seen it before, uh, watching it again, do you feel like it changed your original rating based on no. what you would have kind of felt? I um,
0: originally or I gave it a five, and I would still give it a five.
1: Nice. Okay. Damn. That's,
2: that's strong. Uh, all right. Josh, you're the next up. Uh, I gave this movie three and a half. I had it sitting at three, but us talking about some of the strong suits of the movie convinced me that it's worth at least the extra star. Uh, I am open to maybe changing my mind and liking it more on a future viewing. But uh, as far as what I know right now, just going into this, judging it fairly, like any movie, without like doing a, a fuckload of research, like trying to understand, you know what it's calling back to as far as the Greek tragedy element and what this director's body of work is like, you know, for just a sitting and watching it three and a half stars.
1: Fair. Uh, I'm going to be just a tad higher. Uh, I I don't want to give it a straight five because I do think for as much fun as I had watching it, it's not an absolutely perfect movie to me, but it's so entertaining that I'm going to meet in the middle and kind of give it a four. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think it's a very strong four. I, I really enjoyed the movie and i know that i'd watch it again and that's interesting because i don't not every movie we've watched i would watch again even if i liked it Mm. so i think for me to kind of go out and say that i'd be willing to watch it again says a lot for the movie uh and just how unique Mm -hmm. and interesting it is if anything else i like that it exists so in in such stark contrast to so many other movies considering what's being released and uh i gotta give even though i know that they weren't the primary reason it was made but i gotta give props to a24 for always having a good eye on what they want to be uh, you know what they want to grab to be able to uh, release and distribute in america uh they're just they have a good eye for film and i don't think i've seen anything from them yet that has faltered so good company uh chris had a little scoffing laugh there so i'm assuming he doesn't agree with that but (laughs) (laughs) that's okay i just think there are
3: well maybe we'll eventually watch something like tusk (laughs) hey
1: i actually do want to watch tusk
3: (laughs) me too but it's not supposed to be very
1: good (laughs) uh but you know that's uh we'll save that for a different day so uh to wrap things up i think the only thing we have left to do is uh figure out what movie we're watching next week and is
2: it josh
1: who makes the decision
0: today Mm -hmm.
2: yeah okay what do we got josh the year is 1989 the director is spike lee the movie is called do the right thing
0: oh shit okay
2: uh it's on voodoo and prime it is a a pay to rent kind of thing Uh, it's one that i've heard a lot about and uh plus it's got giancarlo esposito whose name i pronounced the whitest way possible Uh, (laughs) but after seeing him in the Mandalorian, like, I want to see him in more stuff. And, like, Spike Lee's a legend. Like, I gotta actually watch more of his stuff, so... I'm excited to watch this. I've heard a lot of good things. All
1: right. There you go. Do the right thing. So make sure that you get a chance to check that out before you join us uh, for the next episode. If you want to find more of me, you could do so with a weekly gaming podcast that I do called Triangle Squared. You can find the guys and more content for the show in general over on our social media, which is on Twitter at Matinee underscore Midweek, over on Facebook at Midweek Matinee, where you can follow for screenshots that we post of the movies we're doing, fun games where we Put up full of things to see if people can guess uh, movies based off of the emojis, which we had somebody do today and just knocked it out of the park. So good on them. Yeah, it was impressive. Um, and other stuff that we could do, uh, polls that we'll do on Twitter or Facebook sometimes. So go check us out over there if you want to follow us for more. And lastly, if you want to be a patron and support the show with more than just your time, which we are ever so grateful for, then you can head over to patreon.com slash nartech where you get shouted out at the end of every episode that we do as well as every episode of the show roughly a week early i've been getting mildly sloppy and putting it on thursdays and that's my fault no one else but until then this has been midweek matinee and we will see you guys next week thanks to our patrons josh pirell Matt green <laughs> my name is dan luke bartolomeo sean santarude funk turkey danny villiobos Corey hickerson blake popst kevin bacon bits shadowist steven salazar the Stonard, Travis Below, Eduardo Palomino, Stefan Swanland, Constantly Kenny, Solitary Red, Chris Figs, Brian, Donovan Williams, William Digital Spooker, Derek Porter, Josh Ayers, Brandon Edwards, Sean One Neo, Tyler Powers, and LTB. Thank you.
3: Oh, should, oh, should I full? do the intro as Brett this week?
1: So <laughs> <laughs> guys.
3: Welcome to Midweek Matinee.
1: That's a... <laughs> what the fuck? What accent do I have?
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I gave you, like,
1: Skater from Georgia, I think.
2: <laughs> uh, but then you
1: threw on some, like, weird fucking matinee. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 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 I know. No, I was <laughs> trying to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you like i thought he was Bullwinkle. doing the walrus
0: or something <laughs> <laughs> Managee, like whatever Rocky Bullwinkle.
3: hello looker and congratulations you have discovered the secret message midweek matinee is produced and edited by christopher figueroa music is by joshua lago thank you for your support and for enjoying all these movies with us and lastly please send your itunes reviews to old pink care of the funny farm